master's student here at Iowa State University working with nematodes in the Department of Plant Pathology. Um, this is our second podcast for the extension and outreach class I'm taking this summer. With me right now is Dr. Erin Hodson, so she wants to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so she's a professor here at Iowa State in the Department of Entomology, and we're going to talk a little bit today about the soybean gall midge. So I don't know enough about entomology to talk about it myself, but I thought that it was really interesting that we have almost a brand new pest in the state of Iowa. So I thought that'd be something cool to talk about. Yeah, brand new pest doesn't happen very often. And I can say it's happened to me once before when I was a PhD student at the University of Minnesota. My very first summer, we had soybean aphid confirmed in Minnesota and throughout much of North America. And so, you know, that was almost 20 years ago. So a brand new pest, something either invasive or a host shift, you know, doesn't happen very often in the bug world. That's pretty cool because now you love aphids, right? <laughs> they're my babies. Them. Yeah, I love aphids. And uh, they're interesting in, in different ways because of their asexual generation, clonal reproduction. They have a tremendous reproductive rate in the summertime. That does present some challenges to pest management. Something I hadn't really thought about before. Um, this midge, again, something totally different than I've experienced before. So it's been kind of a fun but steep learning curve. That's awesome because right now it's 16 counties in Iowa and hopefully not spreading, but more, probably. even more. So, oh, wow. so uh, yeah, we had kind of this big blow up in Iowa along the western seaboard for lack of a better word, um, last year in 2018. And all those counties have been invested again, plus a couple more. So now we're up to 20 positive detections, basically from the northern border of Minnesota all the way down to Missouri. And, and basically the, you know, the western quarter of the state mm -hmm. has had positive detections. Wow. So the, you said that was just within like the past year because it originally was in 2011, right? Found in Nebraska. Yeah, I think that was sort of the unofficial, official first detection uh, was kind of scattered throughout a few counties in Nebraska, but it was more of a, a curiosity thing. You know, a few plants were dead. You maybe saw some infestations, but it didn't raise any red flags. And so it sort of persisted that way for a few years, uh, eventually found in South Dakota a couple years later. The first time I heard about it in Iowa was 2017 in a farmer field in O'Brien County, which is in the northwestern part of the state. But again, he said, you know, I kind of have this small patch of plants that are dying. It looks like there's something feeding on the inside. And I was like, oh, that's curious because we don't really know how a lot of stem boring pests. And so, uh, you know, trying to learn more about it, but it was so it was relatively minor that I didn't honestly put a lot of energy into it until last year when it really flared up multiple counties widespread and more significant loss, so visible stand loss, and it extended to a good portion of the field, so, you know, for a real economic impact for farmers. Yeah, so I know we said here it's, you know, slow moving according to the fact sheet, but it seems like it's moving a lot quicker. Do we know, like, what exactly could be causing that? We see us also, they're pretty weak flyers, so do you think it just could be moved to, like, soil or anything similar? Yeah, I mean, anyone that sees an adult is going to be totally underwhelmed. It's a very small, long-legged fly. And to me, I'm not a fly taxonomist. <laughs> there are actually fly experts in the world. And, you know, they, um, th that's all they do is, is, is describe these species. So these long-legged flies are maybe about two millimeters in size. So you look at it and you're like, how could that possibly, you know, cause economic loss? 
Um, and they're fragile. And so as you think about like handling a mosquito, you're not gonna be able to do that very well. It's gonna kind of fall apart. And the same thing with these midges are really fragile. But like many other insects, they can move long distance through uh, wind. Uh, I think about like potato leaf hopper, uh, some of the corn aphids, uh, black cutworm, uh, they can move thousands of miles in a single season. And so I think on its own, it wouldn't move very far, you know, within fields or maybe between fields. But I wouldn't be surprised if it could move longer distances with wind patterns. And I think about you know, how many kind of crazy windy, windy days we've had in Iowa this summer. I mean, they could certainly catch that and then maybe jump from county to county. But we just we haven't seen sort of those bigger jumps uh, like I would be expecting for kind of a small pest that might be airborne. <laughs> But you'd ask a question about like, could it be soil? And so um, that's or certainly like root debris is there any way? Yeah, um, that, that's a great question. The, the accidental transfer by a farmer is something I'm not sure about. And certainly a concern if people are, you know, they have a history of moving weed seeds, nematodes, other things, you know, as they're planting or harvesting working fields. That has never been demonstrated through this midge, but again, I wouldn't be surprised if people have muddy, dirty equipment and they're kind of moving soil around from field to field. That could be a way to transfer more local local uh, infestations, perhaps. I don't know, though. It's a good question. Yeah, so that's the thing. We, there's a lot we don't know about the soybean gall midge. So yes. Yeah. I know there's going to be a lot of questions that I <laughs> kind of have in my head. Oh, yeah. Coming from more of a nematology and a background of path perspective of mm-hmm. movement of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I also saw, you know, significant damage in 2018, but not in 2015. Do we know, like, was there anything else that might have happened, like, last growing season with, like, maybe delay of, like, harvest that would cause it? Or are we just attributing that mostly to the midge? Yeah, I think it's more of just sheer numbers. I definitely think it was more widespread than we thought. In the, in the early 2000s, just people didn't realize it. Or they simply misidentified dead and dying plants to like fungal pathogens or SDS or something like that, because you kind of, it would be similar symptomology in which you'd have uh, like a blob or a, you know, a patch of plants that very quickly wilts and dies, turns, you know, turns brown. And so I think people were just assuming it was something else until a few more curious people uh, started to collect or dissect those plants and notice that, you know, sometimes they did have a fungal pathogen and that's way outside of my expertise. Um, but oftentimes, you know, you see these, the insides of the stems infested with these maggots. And so, you know, I think until it really blew up in 18 and no one knows why all of a sudden there were 65 counties in four states uh, with significant damage often happens with sort of a new pest in an area. But I, I don't know why. Crazy. <laughs> it's something cool to me to work with. Yeah. It's horrible for producers, but yeah. like as scientists, it's kind of cool to work on. Yeah, it's it's a lot of low-hanging fruit at this point with any new pest is simply what's its life cycle, what's the biology and population dynamics, injury potential, and then ultimately management when it comes to farmers. How can we help farmers try and overcome this pest and maybe even get to a point where we're protecting yield again? from this pest, it'll be a sort of a long-term research question, questions to ask.
Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so as you said, you know, it's a fly. It has really long legs. Yeah. And I think they said that one of the biggest things are stripes on the legs. You know, is there a lot that they might get confused with another insect? or? Um, yeah, they, because of their small size, you know, it really depends on your vision. I have, I, I, I can pick out some of the diagnostic characters under a microscope, under high magnification. But if I'm just looking at an actual fly in a vial, it is difficult for me to pick out those characters. So they do kind of have fancy legs, mm -hmm. the black and white banded legs, but that would not be unique to gallmage. That would be, you know, help with the diagnostics. They have sort of an orange tinted abdomen. Um, but again, that would be not unique, but if you kind of put all these things together, that's going to help you. We have lots and lots of flies and we have lots of midges that are not pests. And so you know, it would take a trained eye and probably some high magnification to distinguish soybean gall midge from other midges just out and about. But at least in the larval, you know, like the clear and translucent, and they get orange. So, you know, you guys been talking about the orange slices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there is, I've heard that yeah. used more than once. Yeah. The, this fly uh, would have three in larval instars. And to me, it would be difficult to see the first and second instars with the naked eye because they're small and they're transparent. But as they mature, they get to that third instar. I think most people would be able to see the, I'm calling them orange slices or the third, you know, the, right before pupation. Mm -hmm. They can see that with the naked eye. So either kind of if they're opening up plants or they're uh, pulling plants that are well on their way to death, you can see those orange slices sort of flicking themselves off the plant and we assume that they are pupating in the soil. So they're, even though they don't have legs, they're pretty active and they're like kind of flinging themselves, trying to, trying to get away from you. Yeah. Interesting. I did not know that yeah. part. That's yeah. kind of cool. Mm -hmm. So I guess for scouting, like you said, like seeing the first couple larval stages be really difficult, but then of course seeing the third, is there, you know, anything that producers can do at that point if they have them? Obviously at this time we may not know that, but. Yeah. I mean, almost always I'm starting to see dead and dying plants at the field edge. So anytime you could see sort of a rapid wilt, it would be important to scout that patch see if it's a fungal pathogen, or maybe it's soybean gallmage, maybe it's even both. Um, but usually after that plant is infested, there's no way to recover from that. And so, or at least now we don't have a way to, It's we don't have a reactionary type management. Um, so I don't have a good answer for that, but it does kind of help cue you into what's going to happen for the next generation, because usually that that patch of dead plants gets bigger over the summer. So, and sometimes extends well into the field interior. So it would be just more of a heads up that, hey, I have this pest in the area, which if it's a new pest, you know, just the confirmation would be interesting for me to know. Yeah, I know that we talked about before with scouting, you should get the outer parts of the field because in the exterior rows. And I just kind of had a theory about that mm. one. Like, Yes. Do we think it's like someone with air movement potentially, whereas like you said, they're flinging themselves, but when they go to like fly, mm -hmm. if there's not as much air movement to like move them into the interior, if maybe they just kind of get stuck on the exterior rows? Well, this is my, this is my hypothesis is that we think, a few of us think that soybean gall midge overwinter in soybean fields. So they, the, the maggots are going to drop down to the soil and that's how they overwinter as, mm -hmm. uh, as a larva or maybe even a pupa. So they're, they're immature resting in the soil and that happens for a lot of insects. Uh, when spring resumes the following winter, we think they complete development and they emerge as an adult from mm -hmm. the soil. But if 
you know, if it was soybean last year, it's likely going to be corn this year. So they're emerging in a current cornfield. And as far as we know, they don't like to eat corn. So I think they, you know, they emerge as adults and they're looking for new soybean. And so they have to move. And oftentimes, you know, corn is butted up next to soybean. So I think midges are kind of like me. They're lazy. They're only going to go, you know, as far as they need to, to find more food. So I think as soon as they hit that soybean, then they're just new one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're going to drop some eggs. We don't know uh, as far as, you know, number of eggs um, per plant. You know, how long they're laying eggs, we don't know that. And so, but it does seem to be really concentrated at field edges. So I just think because they're not super strong flyers, they fly only as far as they need to, to lay eggs. And so that's where you see, like, where soybean and corn are interfacing. Basically, that is that crossover point from last year to this year. That's my yeah. that's my best guess, but I don't that know. does make a lot of sense too because again, you know, if they're weak flyers, they're not going to want to go further than they have to go. Yeah, so yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. So yeah, that kind of goes through the overwinter question. You know, mm-hmm. obviously they can withstand really cold temperatures because this past year we had negative twenty five Fahrenheit. Those for, polar vortexes didn't really seem to dampen their success, and many other insects had are having a really great year too. So yeah, who knows. So we talked about before the interview started about when you look at the plant and if you peel back root tissue to look at the cortex, you can find them. But that's if there's not a significant damage. Would you also say that, you know, swollen stems of the soil lines are almost like fat cankles is what I would consider that almost <laughs> could also be like an indicator at times? That's awesome. I'm going to totally use the cankle thing from now on. I hope my former audience gets it. But, you know, like the, like the common name suggests gall midge there's a lot of gall forming insects in the world and a gall my understanding is it's the plant's response to try and wall off that feeding so you get an enlargement or tumor of of that plant tissue to try around that insect and so oftentimes these infested plants uh, are swollen or kind of gall-like at the base so zero to six inches from the from the soil line is typically where most of the the maggots are feeding. And so you get an enlargement. Sometimes the stems are split or cracked, but with, you know, it doesn't take very much time from that healthy tissue to start to decay, turn black and almost lesion-like. And so I think, again, if that's where people were mistaking it for some of the fungal pathogens because of that kind of enlarged, corky-like stem at the base of the soil line, could be confused with other things. But, you know, if you even just split it open, uh, you'd see maggots, not necessarily other types of like frass, like you would see maybe for other things, but uh, for other insects, but be loaded up and there's definitely decay going on as they're feeding. It doesn't look normal at all. And with some of the issues, it blocks the flow in the xylem tissue. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what it feeds on. Yeah. So if it's preventing any sort of nutrient or water uptake, that's going to probably cause a lot of wilting. And yeah, very quickly. Yeah, the top turn, it wilts, turns brown, and it goes from a healthy plant to basically a dried up stick in about 10 days. Oh, wow. Pretty so fast. Very yeah. fast acting. Yeah. yeah. So in other words, it should be pretty obvious to producers mm-hmm. if they're having a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if they have noticed maybe a patch last year, it only has seemed to intensify this year. So if they maybe had a few small patches this year, it seems like... Um, just like we had talked before. They had a really good winter, and it seems like the populations are growing stronger compared to 2018, just my anecdotal observation. So once they kill the plant within about 10 days, do you see that they're moving to new plants? Like, are they kind of like biotrophic where they have to 
Well, I think that uh, the the larvae can go, the, the maggots can go through first and second, third instars pretty quickly. So you have maggots that are dropping into the soil and then emerging as a first generation adults. We saw that uh, at the end of June, early July. And right now we're seeing a second flush or second generation. And so I think the life cycle is fairly short, you know, maybe even just like four weeks from egg to adult. So it can turn over pretty fast, but mm -hmm. it seems like that next generation that comes up, the females are choosing to lay eggs in healthy plants. So that's why you have that infested area kind of getting bigger over, bigger over time because they're always kind of looking for green tissue, I think. That, that's what would make sense okay. if you think about it. I mean, yeah. especially with nematodes, like especially the ones that, you know, just cause an attack and like just try to kill and then leave versus ones have to stay there for a little while longer. It's yeah. Some of the nematodes have cooler names though. Like what is like... Like sting and yes. fire, yes. all of the weapons. Yes, we need a more like lethal sounding name for this midge. <laughs> so when it comes to management, obviously, you know, we don't know a whole lot about it, but would you say that if your hypothesis of that it's in the soil, would you like suggest to farmers if they think that if they have it to like till up the next year and try to run like corn or keep soybeans away from that area for the next season? Yeah, there are some there are some farmers who have been dealing this dealing with this for a couple of years and absolutely frustrated because they've tried to have some insecticides either at plant or foliar later in the season without any success and sometimes trying a lot of different cocktails or I don't I don't know what you want to call it uh, to try and see if there's any suppression at all with no luck and so they're at the max of frustration so there are some farmers who just opted out of soybean this year because they, you know, they just basically the the yield loss is very significant. And but that's not that's you know that's a small band-aid for a big problem. So uh, my lab and some other labs in the US are looking at different ways to to target the management and to have maybe a few tools for farmers, which includes insecticidal seed treatments, which could be a really excellent option if you could have a product that would be systemic and target those larvae that are feeding inside so they never have a chance to complete development. That might be a solution. We're also looking at some inferral insecticides, which is kind of crazy to think about for soybean because that's mostly a tactic we would use in corn, but I'm looking at that. And then I'm also looking at a wide range of insecticidal chemistries for foliar applications and not necessarily to target the larvae because it's really hard to uh, have exposure to a stem feeding insect but I don't think it would be too hard to kill an adult as far as like uh, knockdown power but it's more a snag of getting the timing right because we um, you know we're looking at emergence periods and you know how long are they flying that kind of thing and looking at degree days so we could maybe help a farmer time a treatment based on accumulation of heat units we're not quite there yet, but that would be a goal is to, you know, we hit an important degree day mark. It's time to spray if you happen to be in an area with midges to kind of, you know, get the biggest bang for your buck with a foliar application. So we're looking at a couple different strategies on the insecticide world, but we're also going to dig a little bit deeper into host plant resistance. That seems to be a management tactic for other stem boring insects and other crops. And so they use genetic screening to see, you know, digging into the germplasm. Is there something that just the midges don't like or they can't survive or they're repelled or whatever it is? So we'll definitely look into more seed genetics um, in the future. A lot of different strategies that have worked for other pests. We're going to 
you try for this best? It's probably the best route. I was rather <laughs> try to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I guess yeah. to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can imagine if you have a, a pest like this that is causing it's just straight up plant death. Um, it's a severe economic loss that industry is very interested in helping me solve this problem. And so uh, I'm using a lot of standard insecticides that are already labeled in soybean, but I'm also getting a chance to look at some new modes of action that typically aren't used in soybean because they're, they're sort of new age chemistries that would be more for high value crops like fruit and veg. But, um, you know, they would have more systemic action, which is maybe what we would need to control this pest. And so, yeah, well, I'm going to try I'm going to try the kitchen sink, see what sticks and maybe come up with a few ideas for farmers in the next couple of growing seasons. So another thing I know about the biology is when they cluster together at the feeding sites and considering they can have so many different staging, yeah. would that provide uh, more of an issue, I guess, toward the management mm. is like seeing kind of how they feed or... <sighs> It totally will put a wrinkle in, in things, but to what extent, I don't know right now. But uh, yeah, they do seem to be, you know, a couple different life stages as far as first, second, third, feeding at the same time. It's not known if, if it's just they mature differently or if it was different females laying eggs. There's, there's so many questions we just don't know. But, you know, it'd be easier to kill a small one than a big one, but um, don't know exactly how we're going to get there yet. Yeah, so, I mean, you kind of mentioned a little bit more about current research mm -hmm. that's going on. Where are you kind of seeing that take off in the next couple of years? Yeah, it's because we, we keep hearing things about um, tillage, um, row spacing, data planting, uh, some of the strategies that have been successful for other pests. Um, but we don't seem to see that trend with this pest as far as high residue, low residue, um, you know, row spacing, data planting. It really... We haven't seen any clear trends with that, but we'll keep digging into that. Sometimes people have been talking about different fertility regimes on how maybe not well-fed, but happy, healthy beans seem to be more attractive than like stressed out. So we're going to dig deeper into the fertility uh, as well. But the research is basically, you know, find out more about the pest so we can interfere with the pest and, and we don't want it to be as successful. We want to throw some hurdles at it. So can this happen within the greenhouse and growth chambers as well as in the field, or are you guys mostly looking at field study? Yeah, I mean, we would definitely love to have some greenhouse growth chamber type experiments, but the first step is just to get it in a colony, mm -hmm. and that has proved to be a challenge. Gotcha. Um, it's really easy to keep an aphid colony going because you just plop one aphid from an infested plant onto a new plant, and because they're asexual, they just start kicking out nymphs no problem. With this fly, you need males and females, and it takes time to mate and generate eggs. And so far, our attempts have not been successful here at Iowa State and other places. And so it's it's more of a challenge to deal with uh, a sexually reproducing and something that has to have a like an egg laying stage. Um, so, but once I'm sure we can work those kinks out. So once we get a colony going, then we can do much more precise types of experiments where we're looking exactly at degree days, life cycle, dynamics. But for now, it's a small plot, field-based type research. Well, I'm definitely interested and we'll definitely keep up or keep watching, <laughs> I guess, for yes. new stuff from you guys. Um, I didn't have any other questions. Is there any kind of 
overarching ideas that you think are the most important that we haven't covered? Yeah, I mean, again, we just we don't know at this time if it's an invasive pest, you know, coming from another part of the world, or if it was a pest that had a host shift. Say it was on a wild legume in North America and has recently discovered that soybean's not that bad. And so we'll learn a little bit more about the genetic history of this pest, maybe learn, you know, why are we only finding it here? It could be existing in other areas, but it's just not considered a problem because of maybe some of the seed genetics they're using. So we'd want to take advantage of that. And that's an example that we exactly did for soybean aphid. We went to the native regions, collected the germplasm from Asia, and that's what we're trying to use to manage this pest. And so we'll continue to dig into that. And as, as far as now, I'm just trying to collect data on when, where, and how type things. And so I'm always looking for new detections. I think it will spread into central Iowa. Um, we just had a positive detection in Missouri. So now we have five states uh, with this pest. And so I think the expansion is going to continue. We just don't know how fast. So we're just trying to get that documentation, you know, as accurate as we can. So just trying to get the word out with this, you know, like this podcast through Twitter and everything else, um, just to try and learn more about the biology and, and spread. So if a producer believes they have this until what can they do? Can they send samples to you to the plant insect diagnostic clinic? They certainly could. I've been getting a lot of photographs and that's really all that I need is uh, to show me a plant that's what they think is infested with the orange slices because there really is nothing else in North American soybean that looks like that. We don't have any stem boring maggots in soybeans. So sending me a picture through Twitter, Aaron W. Hodson, or even just email ewh at iastate.edu. And so I've been getting a lot of communications through email and Twitter, and that's been really helpful because there are some crop consultants or some farmers who really have their eyes open and, you know, really trying to help me out. So I appreciate that and just, you know, keep, keep the information coming. Well, especially to continue the research so we can figure out what's going on with yeah. that and hopefully solve the problem for future years or at least provide management options. Yeah, because I, I eventually I'm going to hear a, a story or a scenario from a farmer that said, I did this and it worked. You know, and I just, I, I'm expecting that sometime, you know, the right timing, the right insecticide or whatever it is. And so there are going to be some things that are going to work for this pest. I just, I need to keep trying it. So I appreciate any of those comments about what seems to work or what was a failure. I'll take any of it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for yeah. being here. I know that I don't always know the most about insects, so I definitely enjoyed learning about this one and staying up on top of what research <laughs> is going on. Hey, I learned about cankles, so thanks. You're welcome, <laughs> but thank you guys so much for tuning in, and I hope that this isn't a problem in your field, um, but I hope that you can learn something like I did, so thank you so much. Mm -hmm.